0: Well, we definitely need to pray as a congregation. There's a lot going on. We'll do that in a second. Uh, Let me give you a couple of announcements before that. Um, Number one, we just had our missions conference, so uh, if you missed some of that, go back and review it, maybe. Um, A lot of great missionaries from around the world. In light of that, MTW, if you go on their website at MTW, that's our missions organization as a denomination. If you go on their website, you can see ways that you can help with Ukraine. Matter of fact, they're already signing up for trips uh, to get to Poland, uh, to help with refugees, uh, to get to Ukraine post-war, whenever that would be, uh, to help financially or to actually help. There's gonna be a lot of rebuilding. But we are uh, watching probably one of the largest humanitarian crises that we've seen, at least in my lifetime. And uh, I've never seen a, a land war in Europe. Before, heard about it, um, read about them, but never watched one happen. So, our missions organizations are working behind the scenes to kind of uh, get prepared for however the Lord might use us. Uh, And it does make us think about the global world, right? We want to pray about that. We want to keep being a church that thinks not just about Greenville. It's so tempting just to always think about Greenville, you know, the 10 best cities, the 10 best downtowns, the 10 best, all of this. But we live in a world where there's a lot of need. And so at Mitchell Road, we're always going to be trying to push us outside to think about the rest of the world. There's a war going on in Kenya that you don't even know about. There's a war going on in Tigray that uh, we don't even know about. They don't hit the front page, but there's plenty of other things happening around the world that we need to be constantly praying about. And there's great news as well of gospel truth of what God does. To my left, Most of you are right, this rosebud for Jeremy Andrew Bryan, uh, who on uh, February 22nd, which is my birthday, thank you for the gift, just kidding, I didn't get anything, Uh, my wife told me happy birthday in the morning, and I got Chick-fil-A at night, that was, when you're a father, that's all it is, but he's adopted on the 22nd to Drew and Lindsay, and so we celebrate that adoption as if it was a birth. Now, I don't, this might be a little bit too much for you, but sometimes you don't know how to pray, Uh, and that's okay. I'm a pastor, sometimes I don't know how to pray either. So we use the Psalms when you're stuck and you don't have words, and uh, maybe you've always wondered, what was the purpose of these imprecatory Psalms? that are in the Bible, that that ask for judgment to come down on somebody. Well, things like this. Uh, Countries, invading countries. So we're going to pray. I'm going to use as an outline Psalm 37. You can read it later. Or this afternoon, if you lose your words, if you can't find words to make sense of your groanings, go to the psalm, read it, make those words your own. Father... We want to delight ourselves in you because you befriend the faithless. And we want to delight ourselves in you because you promise to give us the desires of your heart and the desires of our heart. And we're so tempted in this world we live in to fret over the ones who are successful when we're being faithful, over the ones that look like there's no judgment when they're doing evil. But as you remind us in your word, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. And it's the meek that will inherit the earth. And even as we think through journeying through scripture, Moses was the, described as being the meekest man on earth. And you, you made him a leader. And Father, we pray for those uh, that are fleeing we pray for the fathers that are saying goodbye to their kids to stay and try to help however they can, maybe never to see them again. We pray for those even inside Russia uh, that are struggling. There's churches in Russia that are trying to figure out how to feed their children as well. Uh, there's people all around this world which are hurting. We um, We don't doubt that a bit, and even if we're honest, there's people beside us in the pew that are hurting and are in intense pain, filled with anxiety, fear, sin, and maybe don't want to mention it. But Father, would we agree with your word that better is a little that the righteous has than the plenty of the wicked? Because the wicked has much, but they don't pay it back. They never think about others. They're not concerned for the common good. So we pray, Father, that you would bring judgment where you need to bring judgment. Father, we pray in our hearts as we think about you, we pray that we would decrease and you would increase, as John the Baptist said. We pray that we would see you, God, as more merciful and just and loving and kind and mighty and powerful That we would become a people of prayer, that we would become a people of love, of grace and forgiveness. Father, that you would make us weak, that you would make us people that are meek, that you would make us a people that love you and your word and who you are. We pray for our brothers and sisters across this world, especially as we've mentioned those in and around Ukraine. And we pray for peace. And we pray that you give us wisdom. And we pray as Christians, as we've talked about a lot these last couple of weeks. Actually, fathers, you've told us these last couple of years that we would be a people of hope. Jesus, we thank you that you warned us about all of these things. You told us about them. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you remind us of who Christ is, that you guide us by your spirit, that you comfort us and you convict us. And so we, may we live as a congregation just this week until we can get back here next week and worship you again. May we live in step with your spirit. We pray in your name. Amen. Hey, have you ever been, as you turn to Numbers chapter uh, 13, which is where we are this week, um, have you ever been so close to something and so far away at the same time? Um, It might have been so close to sealing that contract or so close. I've I've talked to a lot of guys that were like within a hair's breadth of selling their company and then the whole deal kind of fell apart or so close that having a child, and you have a miscarriage, or so close to any number of things, and then it all just kind of dissipates. It's part of the human condition. When Elizabeth and I, this last year, we went to out west, we went to uh, Yosemite, and my wife was so great to do the research, and she found out that you had to have a a ticket. You had to make a reservation, because they have too many people going into those parks now. So you have to make a reservation. So she made the reservation. There's this long line to get into the front gate, And in front of us were three cars loaded down with kids. A license plate from Arizona, a license plate from Nevada, and a license plate from Utah. Three cars loaded down with all of these kids, all this camping equipment, who got turned around at the gate. Had planned the whole week to be in Yosemite. And got turned so close, and yet so far away... (laughs) and the the great thing because i knew we had a reservation was watching uh the husband and the wife when they got turned around you could just tell they were just i mean we had planned on this all year long and now we're going to spend next week in motel six down the road you know they were just add it with each other you could just sense the tension well that's what's happening here in numbers they're so close And actually, in the Hebrew, this book is called The Wandering. It's not called Numbers. I love this book. If you're reading through Scripture with us, it's a phenomenal book. But here in this text, they get so close to the Promised Land. All of these years in slavery, all of the complaining, all of the arguing, all of getting several million people through the desert right now by Jordan River, they're so close and so far away. They send in 12 spies, one from each of the tribes. Jacob, I mean Joshua and Caleb from the largest and the smallest tribe go in with them. And they spend 40 days scouting out everything, getting the lay of the land. And that's where we get this text, starting at verse 25. At the end of 40 days, they return from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them, to all the congregation, and showed them the fruit of the land. If I will pause right there. If you want to look up above at verse 23, they cut this cluster of grapes. And it was so big, this cluster of grapes, that they had to carry it on a pole, a two-by-four, between two people with all of these grapes. Verse 27. And they told them, we came to the land where you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, they all dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, "'Let us go up at once and occupy it, "'for we are well able to overcome it.' "'Then the men who had gone up with him said, "'We are not able to go up against the people, "'for they're stronger than we are.' "'So they brought to the people of Israel "'a bad report of the land that had been spied out, "'saying, the land, though which we have gone to spy it out, "'is a land that devours its inhabitants, "'and all the people that are in it are of great height.' And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. This is the word of the Lord. Three quick points. The first one is this. Obstacles can lead to disobedience. The obstacles that we have in life, if we allow them to be obstacles, will quickly lead to our own disobedience. You see here in the text that they have a a pretty good report. They didn't discount, in the initial report, they didn't discount that it was a land flowing with milk and honey. They didn't discount the fruit. They didn't try to hide that. Actually, they brought it back on poles. They showed it to all the people. They did a cost-benefit analysis. They said, look, here's the people who are in the hill country. Here's the people who are by the Jordan. Here's the people that are by the sea. Here's the Amalekites. Here's the Anak descendants. Here's all these people. They actually had a, a pretty good report. And Joshua and Caleb initially said, look, let's go and let's do it. You can imagine Joshua saying, I've waited my whole life for this everything has been stories about coming back into this promised land my entire life has been getting ready for this one very moment surely we're not going to stop now and Caleb quieted the crowd let's go into it let's do it and then of course we have the spies these 10 spies that create in verse 31 through 33 panic and fear There's a lot of that right now. There's there's a lot of people that peddle fear for a living. That's all they do is try to get you to become fearful because then they own you and they keep peddling fear more and more and more again and we keep buying into that. Where the Christian ways to say, no, what does God want us to do about all of this? So here they are on the outside of the Jordan saying, we can't go in. If we go in, we're all going to die in there. They, they devour their inhabitants. But the reality is if they stay where they are, they're going to die. They don't have an option, right? I went to a, uh, don't ever do this. I, I took uh, eight 10-year-old boys to a panic room one time an escape room you know where you get in there and they everything's locked and i took these 10 year old boys some of your kids and grandkids were in there with me I was the only adult and and the whole thing is to like create anxiety and you can't and and this was centered around a volcano erupting and if it erupts at the end then you know you don't make it out of the escape room and about five minutes left the uh, volcano explodes and this sound system kind of comes through and rumbles and all of this and the kids just went crazy They just start running around the room. One kid literally sat in the corner and said, we're all going to die in here. And I looked up at the camera because they watch you, you know, they give you cue. I looked up at the camera. I was like, can you just let me out? This is miserable in here. Well, that's what the feeling is for them. The feeling right here is they're so close to the promised land and they're just creating all this panic and all this anxiety. They're saying, we're all going to die. We can't do it. Now, if you're Caleb and Joshua, what would you say? Because there's obviously more conversation that's happening behind closed doors that is in this text. What would you say? Would you say things like, look, this is not blind faith. God has brought us all this way. Why would he bring us all this way and then leave us? Would you say, can't you trust the character of God? I mean, hasn't God shown to be providential and caring? He's given us manna. He's given us quail. He's given us all of this stuff. He's, He's constantly shown his character to us. He's constantly shown his love to us. What would you say? If you were Joshua or Caleb, and you had to convince the other 10 on the ride back, or the whole group, your tribe, if you had to convince them to trust and follow the Lord, what would you say? Now, can you say that to your own heart? Can you tell yourself that? The places where you're not wanting to trust? The places where you're doubting? The places where God is calling you into? Can you... Can you preach the gospel to yourself? God, I know you've told me not to be fearful. I know you've told me not to be anxious. I know you've always proven yourself to me in my life. I know you've told me all these things. Now, we don't take land. There's a lot of history that has been written that pretty much uh, the scope of the Bible is Uh, a scope of land, a trajectory of land, either Eden or the new heavens or new earth or the promised land and everything else in between. But there are some places where we need to take ground and there's obstacles that will prevent you from taking ground. Let me give you two places where we need to take some ground today. Discipleship and evangelism. Nothing new. That's been given to us uh, from Jesus. But first of all, discipleship. Learning to be a people that allow our own hearts to be conquered with the grace and the mercy and truth of Christ. And there will come obstacles with that. For example, if God's telling you, you don't need to be anxious anymore, you might have the obstacle of having to turn off that TV and pick up your Bible. Do something else besides watching the news all the time. If God's asking you to be generous, uh, maybe you've made a lot of money and God's saying, okay, it's time, you've put it off long enough. It's time now to be generous. There's going to be obstacles. There's always going to be a new boat, a new car, something else you can do. But what the Christian does in discipleship is allow God to take the land of his or her own heart. I follow a very, very liberal, uh, I would call her a Christian because she calls herself a Christian, but she doesn't look anything like us. Very liberal girl on Twitter. And she just put out a tweet this past week. And this is the tweet. Jesus, I give up. You win. You've convinced me. I'm now fully, authentically pro-life. Now, she got mocked for that. Both by people on the left and, interestingly, people on the right who also mocked her for not getting there sooner, which bothered me. But I love the power of that text. Jesus, I give up. I see it now. I see that you love life and you love the dignity of life and and I'm going to give up all those views I held that made me popular in the circles I run in to, to follow you. Discipleship. The other is evangelism. You know, can I just be honest? We're not great at it. We think everybody is already saved, or everybody already has a church, or we don't have any kind of urgency of the gospel, and there's all these obstacles that keep us in disobedience. As soon as I start the conversation, they'll ask me a question, Andy. I won't know the answer. Of course you won't. You say, let's find out together. Let's have another coffee. You keep them on the line. Uh, You'll have all these obstacles. Maybe they won't like me. Maybe I'll get kicked out of my business. All these obstacles that keep us into disobedience, but here's the end of the day, Joshua and Caleb knew the telos. They knew the end. They knew they were made for that promised land. And you and I, the end is not our personal comfort. The end of our lives is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And if that's the telos, if that's the end, then you can push through any obstacle. It doesn't matter what Super Bowl team ever wins. Pick any Super Bowl team, any EPL team, English Premier League soccer team. When they win the championship, what's the first thing they all say? We work so hard to get here. There are so many times. There are so many workouts. There are so many games we lost. We work so hard to get here. See, they didn't view the obstacles as something that was going to put them off their trajectory. They viewed their obstacles actually as a badge of honor. And we sometimes assume that if we follow God in obedience, then life is just going to be chummy and comfortable. Where God says, No, there's sometimes going to be obstacles, but don't let them lead you to disobedience. Here's the second point. Objections can lead to disbelief. Now, I want to spend a few minutes <clears throat> excuse me, and talk just to non-Christians. Um, and actually, what's happening now is there's not only non-believers in this room, and I, I know some of you, and we're glad you're here. And we're going to continue in dialogue, and you ask me hard questions, and I'll ask you hard questions. That's how it works. Uh, but there's also people that are Christians and have been Christians for a while that sit in the pews and are starting to deconstruct. They're starting to think, I don't, I don't know if all of this is true. And there's people that are kind of coming into the faith and there's people that are falling away from the faith. This is a problematic passage for both, right? Because those who are deconstructing or those who are non-believers will look at this package passage and say, I don't like it. Is this what Christianity is? Is Christianity just domineering? What about the Crusades? What about all the other wars? Do Christians just get to go in and slaughter these people who've been living in that land? Like, how could this be a God of love? What is going on here? Well, there's a couple things I want to say. Number one is this, and it's a great week to talk about it. There is a Christian doctrine of just war theory, which was initially formed from Augustine uh, when Rome was plundering the world. And in just war theory, it's important to know this uh, as you discuss things in Ukraine and Russia. There's three things that you have to have in order to have a just war, according to Augustine and Christian theologians. The first is this, it has to be necessary. The second is this, there has to be a disparation between the combatants and the non-combatants. You've got to be able to separate those out. And you actually have to provide safe coverage and care and love and food for the non-combatants. You can't rape and, you know, take over the cities. So it has to be necessary. You have to be able to differentiate between the two. And then the third thing is this. You must only use force in a proportionary way with the force needed to achieve your ends. Those are the three things. And what's interesting about this passage is this. We assume the Canaanites, the Amalekites, the sons of Anak, are just there and they're living wonderful lives and they're for the common good and all of these things. But John Day, you don't know him, he's a brilliant scholar who wrote an article published in Cambridge. And here's what he said. Anybody, anybody who had an army of any time should have overtaken this land because things had gotten so bad what was happening in that area, especially with the Canaanites, where they were regularly sacrificing their kids to Moloch? Matter of fact, archaeologists had found graves with hundreds of infants that were being sacrificed to these gods, and the whole thing had broken apart. And what John Day argues is this is actually a war of mercy, not only because the land was originally theirs, but also to create the dignity of life for those who are living in that land. And the rules of the Israelites were actually very, very, very tame as to how to treat the people who are combatants and non-combatants compared with the other people that are going around in this world at this time. So that's how John Day argues it. But we should also think about it this way. That Christianity, in its essence, is not a culture killer. But it's been proven that way sometimes, hasn't it? If you were here on the kaleidoscope uh, weekend where we have the missionaries, they all come up here. Michael Wadhams, who is right here, works with the Cook Sack tribes in Washington State, Uh, Native American Indian tribes. And what Michael said on this platform during that kaleidoscope was this the first hurdle that I have to get over in evangelizing these Native Americans is this they view Christianity as the culture killers. You're the people that came in, claimed you know this guy named Jesus, who's love and mercy, and then you took our land and you killed us. So why would I follow your God? Fair point. On the other side of the stage was uh, Pat Butler. And Pat Butler works with arts ministry, and she talked about a refugee camp where Christians set up food. But not only did they set up food, they also set up an orchestra. So when you're walking towards the food line, you could hear this orchestra. So it creates dignity for people again, the sense of normalcy. See, there is a sense where we have to concede the point that over a history of years, many things have done, many people have done awful things in the name of Christ. But, go back to that point. Don't let your disbelief, don't let your objections lead to disbelief. We know that people have harmed the name of Christ by doing horrendous things in the name of Christ. We know that. But if you're not a Christian, or if you're deconstructing, don't let that objection lead to disbelief. Imagine, instead, you're an 18-year-old girl, just for starters. And you're an 18-year-old girl and your roommate keeps coming back and she says, I had this date and this guy treated me awful. He got drunk at the party and he left me and I I didn't have a ride home. All men are pigs. And you would say, of of course they are. Yes, we all agree with that. And, And then I had this other date and the guy was on his phone the whole time and he would never talk to me. And, you know, at the end of the day, he didn't open any doors for me. He just left. All men are pigs. And you would say... Of course, I'm so sorry. Yes, of course they are. And you would resonate with your roommate. And you'd actually agree with that point. And then the next day, the guy of your dreams asks you out. He's handsome. He's six foot two and a half, which is apparently the perfect height. (laughs) He's got sandy blonde hair. Well, it's popular now to to have a mullet, uh, which I don't understand, which... My son has one, which I think is borderline unbiblical, but I can't find a verse to to prove it. I don't know why I pay for those haircuts, Um, but it is what it is. But he's got this this hair, and he's nice, and he's kind. He's got older sisters, so he's going to be a good husband. That's one of the ways you know. And he's rich. And he asks you out the next day, at lunch, would you say, no way, all men are pigs? No, you bat your eyes and say, what time? Where are we going? Look, don't let your objections to things that you find offensive keep you from falling in love with the one and true Savior Christ. We can work through the objections, but don't don't let the objections keep you from finding the one love, the one person who bring you security that you desperately need. And then lastly, uh, options will lead to desiring Christ. Uh, I should talk about the Nephilim because they're here, and if I don't tell you about the Nephilim, you're just going to write me emails. So it's better just to do it now. But the Nephilim shows that it's uh, a cosmic war. There's four options. Ne- the Nephilim referred to uh, way back to Genesis chapter 6, where the sons of Eve and the angels were interacting together and producing offspring, and that was a part of them, part of the flood. So either the same thing is happening, that's option number one. Option number two, they were just referring to people who were giants as Nephilim. Uh, option number three, it was just a regional flood, not a global flood. Don't let that kind of make your mind go crazy you can talk to me about that after. I'm not saying that's my option or option number four. They just started to put Nephilim in their nomenclature for when they were scared of some kind of obstacle. So those are four options. I think it's probably the last one actually. Uh, But that's how they, they were like, Oh, it just brings back all of these things to mind, but it is kind of a cosmic war here going on. But the third point I want to bring up is this. Your options can lead you to actually desire Christ. See, they have three options. They could retreat, and that's what we see them asking for in chapter 14. Now can we find a leader that will take us actually back to Egypt? They they start to like go away from Joshua and Caleb and try to get back into slavery. That's how warped the human mind and heart is. I'll go back into the sin, which is I'm actually a slave to it because it makes me feel comfortable. At least I know what I'm dealing with. That was the first option. The second option was Apathy. We can just stay right here. But you can't stay there. And let me say this. For some of you who your life, your Christian life does not feel alive. And you're like, Andy, I don't feel like I have any life to me. I don't feel like my faith is alive. I don't feel like there's any kind of joy in my life. I typically say this. Do you know why? Is there any place in your life where you're trusting is there any place in your life where you're using faith, where you're stepping out on faith? See, you're, you're made. We're made. Our hearts are made to walk in faith, not in sight. And that is what makes you feel alive. It's the risk of the gospel of grace to take these steps of faith and obedience, not knowing where you're going to go, but knowing there's a God who leads you. That's what makes us feel alive. And if you're not doing any of that, you're going to feel apathetic and dead. And when somebody is just sitting in one place, what does every medical doctor say? You got to get up and get moving. We got to start moving somewhere. We, got, we, we can't stay here in the middle of the desert. And the third option is to trust. To trust in your life and in your hearts, the conquering king, the things that God has said he would do, he will promise. And let's come to this table, but let's come to this table with this idea that Christ himself could have retreated. He could have said, let's just flood the whole thing again. What a mess. I'm trying to bring them into this land flowing with milk and honey. They won't even step across the Jordan River. They won't even take a step. They're so fearful. They keep rebelling, they keep complaining. I've done everything for them. Let's just flood it all again. He could have retreated. God could have been apathetic. God could have said, well, I'll just stay here and I'll just see how, see how it works out. I'll stay in my comfortable place where I'm worshiped by the cherubim and the seraphim and I'll just stay here and we'll see how they can, if they can finally work it out. But he didn't do either of those, did he? He stepped across the Jordan. He came into incarnation. He was willing to put up with all the obstacles of being spit upon, of being killed, of being misunderstood, of fighting Satan himself in the wilderness to conquer you and to conquer me. Matter of fact, it says in Hebrews 12, therefore, since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that's before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross his objections his problem his obstacles didn't lead to his disobedience why for the joy set before him what's the joy you are you're his joy and he was willing to endure all of that everything he had to endure to conquer your heart and my heart so that he could be our god and we could be his people And then we could spend our very short lives walking in faith, trusting that we have a God who's sovereign and providential, has conquered all of his and our enemies so that we might have joy and have hope and we might live that way. Then we disciple ourselves and we tell others about it. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Father, we come to this table now. And we pray that as we walk these aisles, that every step would be a reminder of you coming to us. And we pray that this would be a table of great celebration. This is not a table of repentance, although some of us might need to repent. Uh, but it's a table of remembrance. Where for those of us who are struggling in sin right now and are struggling in life, would you remind us that your means of grace are sufficient? And even if we're not trusting you and we're apathetic and we're sitting in the wilderness, you actually sit with us. You're not at a place that we have to try to get to. You're the incarnate king who walks us through every valley, every briar patch, every part of anxiety and fear. And even when we sin, you're with us. You're offended, but you're there. You're grieved, but you don't leave us. So at this table, may we celebrate. May we enjoy watching each other take communion, knowing that we journey together as this little tribe on the east side of Greenville. And, Father, may we celebrate Christ, you, our king, our conquering king, who came into this world to give us dignity and to give us life and to give us joy. May we hear that gospel music again, we pray in your name. Amen.